Welcome to Ordinarily Extraordinary Conversations with Women in STEM. I'm your host, Kathy Nelson, an electrical engineer who loves to hear and share stories of other women in STEM. Today, we have Donna Laughlin. She's the founder of LMGPR, a PR and corporate communication company that works with tech companies. She has bachelor's and master's degrees in journalism and has worked with people in STEM for most of her career. Donna shares tips and advice for communicating technical ideas with non-technical people, in addition to sharing her own story and experiences working with STEM professionals and technology companies. Donna is also the host of the podcast, Before It Happened, which features visionaries at the moments and events that inspired them to change their lives. Please enjoy her story. Hello, Kathy. Hi, how are you? Hi, I'm great. How are you? I am all right. My son brought home an illness from school last week that I have now apparently acquired. So hopefully I will not be like, oh no, too annoying. Okay. So what do you want to talk about today? Well, so I am actually pretty excited to talk to you because, um, you do something for a job that is super critical that I think is overlooked a lot of times in the STEM world and that's communications. Tell me about like what you do for a job and how, what you do how you got involved in STEM with, with what you do in communications and journalism. Well, for the, the last 20 years, I've had my, my PR agency where LMGPR, where I focus on working with visionaries and a, a lot of futurists and helping them tell an authentic story that's going to resonate to their customers, to their partners, and to ultimately their investors sometimes. So it's a nice trifecta of, of audiences but oftentimes they're so close to that, they they can't really tell that relevant story. And so looking at all the attributes of not just the innovation and the technology, but also looking at the people, who are the people behind the innovation and the technology? Are they, um, you know, men? Are they, are they women? Are they scientists? You know, are they um, highly experienced in aviation, aerospace, artificial intelligence, mathematicians? What kind of you know PhD doctorate work they have? Um, are they a black belt? Are they a former Olympian? Are they uh, you know well documented writer, an author of papers as well as books, and then maybe even speaking? So looking at like a whole library of things that ultimately can elevate that story and that discussion. And just to give you an, an ex- example. I just hired an intern and I got her resume and it was great referred to me by my hairdresser. And at first thought like, Oh, how's my hairdresser going to know about referring me an intern? Cause she knew I was looking for an intern and it's been kind of a, a drought the past couple of years, not just a drought in California, but a drought in finding great interns mm-hmm. and with interest in tech and with the STEM background. And the first thing I saw on her resume was that she had was working for a Wonder Woman tech nonprofit organization in Los Angeles, California, which specializes in women who are pursuing careers in, in STEM. And I was like, wow, I didn't know the group existed. That was great as a college student that she was involved in that. And the roster of the types of things that they were working in, which is everything from automation to autonomous and artificial intelligence and agriculture and, and um, aviation and, and just a broad array of, of different market spaces. 
So of course I, I looked at her resume and said, I don't think she even knows what she has here. And you know, coupled with that, she had been working at a farmer's market. Now you wouldn't think farmer's market, STEM nonprofit would really have a intersection, but because I work with agritech and smart technology that is being applied in, in agritech, I immediately saw the common thread. Mm-hmm. And, and that's pretty much what I do with my clients as well, as I look for everything, you know, it's like a little bit of alphabet soup. I look at all the DNA. I look at the, um, all the attributes of the, the different types of technology, innovation, the customers and the backgrounds of the individuals. And then I look for the sweet spot commonalities and maybe in some places juxtapositions that don't make any sense, but they're kind of cool. And they're so cool that maybe we need to put them together. So as an example, um, one of the senior technical um, executives at Nightscope Robotics, she referred for Gibson Guitar before she started her computer industry career, only because as a woman, she was not given the roles that she, you know, that she had the education for that she should have had the interviews for, but she wasn't receiving them. So she took an administrative assistant type position and she ended up becoming the person that developed all their IT infrastructure and connected this very legacy-based business and brought them into the 21st century. And that was her entree into tech. And I thought that was pretty fascinating that she came, you know, came from, you know, that, uh, that industry and was able to make it her own. And otherwise she might just still be in that position. And she, she's actually interviewed on my podcast. If you listen to the Mercedes Soria story, um, it, it's a great testament of willpower and stamina and kind of looking at making the impossible possible. And that's kind of what I do. Okay. So how did you get involved in STEM? Like what's your connection to STEM from having a journalism background? So in, in the Silicon Valley, obviously most of the work that was fed to us as a graduate student at UC Berkeley, if we wanted to work on anything, it typically was going to be tech related. So my first entree was um, working on chips with Intel. And so I was, um, I had an internship that I did with Intel. And so I needed to report on chips and spend time in the labs with the, um, with the engineers and the scientists. And I knew absolutely nothing. <laughs> and they would give me this massive volumes of, of, of manuals to, to read. And I just asked questions and learning to ask the right questions was a journey in itself because I really needed to understand why versus how. And I realized they were the experts and my job was to pull and curate the content. And so chips are, you know, a really essential part of of a lot of technology. So once I got that baseline, then it was working on networking devices and bigger enterprise and data center type products. And you you just kind of lose the fear because I I don't have a science or, uh, you know, science or computer science background, but I was always amongst it, amongst my, my college peers that were studying those things. And I would walk, literally walk through the school of engineering at UC Berkeley and just kind of laugh and say, I hope the DNA falls off on me. And, and so Intel was kind of like the, the first entry point. 
Do you find from a communication standpoint that not having a STEM background is actually helpful because you are probably coming at it from a different angle. You're asking different questions. And I tend to think that I can get better information when I'm talking to like a guest on my podcast, for example, who works in a field that I know nothing about because I'm asking like these, what I think are like stupid baseline questions because I don't know anything about it. But then at the same time, I'm like most people you're talking to don't know anything about it. Like if you are an expert in that, you're going to ask different questions and it's not going to go to the same type of audience. So do you find that not having a STEM background has been helpful in your particular role? Yeah, I think a little bit of that innocence is helpful (laughs) because I I take a deep dive in, in looking at everything. So I will look at manuscripts and I'll look at the research and I'll want, you know, let's see original, you know, um, beta test and, and uh, customer feedback and uh, any analysis that's available. And sometimes the analysis isn't available. So then I just set up one-on-one time with, you know, the in different, you know, different engineers, CTO, whatever um, knowledge source that, you know, that that's available and get a quick demo and an understanding, but then I focus on, okay, so what matters to the market, right? What matters to an editor that I'm speaking to ultimately say at the wall street journal innovation and tech editors, they have a fairly high aptitude of what the market is, but like me, they don't need to know exactly the, all the inner workings of something. They just need to be able to understand the baseline of the value, the impact, and then the, um, and how it's going to impact how we live and work. Right. And so that's, that's different. So if you go to a deeper conversation with a, IEEE spectrum or a popular science or popular mechanics, or even sometimes MIT review type publications, then the, the level of discussion kind of amplifies up a bit. Mm -hmm. Right. And that's where I feel I really have to do my homework. So don't sound like I'm talking with marbles in my mouth (laughs) and not just, you know, reading a script, but that discovery process to me is, is, is really cool. And I think what technical people can learn from communications side is knowing that your expertise and your, your, your STEM uh, knowledge is invaluable to people like myself, because it, we need both connective and creative skill sets to tell that story. They go together. Mm -hmm. So I want to come back to this because when we were doing our introductory call, we talked a lot about, um, just like being able to talk about technical things in non-technical ways. So I do want to like revisit this, but I do, I want to get your yeah. opinion on working in Silicon Valley. You know, I hear rumors and I, I, I worked in Silicon Valley for a couple of years at a startup, but it was with people that I knew and that had recruited me to go there. So I had a different experience than I think other women do, but you know, some of the rumors that we hear are that women are very, that it's a pretty toxic environment for women in Silicon Valley. And I'm just curious what your perspective is on that from the standpoint that you have gone into probably like many different companies, not, you know, necessarily working at them, but working with them. What, what do you see in like, what is the environment in the actuality of what you have experienced? Well, I will say earlier in my career, I faced it much more than I do my own because I own my business and I have zero tolerance, um, but in corporate environments. And I've seen this also uh, visiting large corporate environment 
scenarios. I think there is a double standard. I think that women are, are still have to clamor harder, faster, and have to make choices such as, you know, is it the family or is it my career? And I think if anything, this last year and a half in COVID, having more fathers and both parents being in a home in some scenarios that, that hopefully is going to impact that, that mind switch and think, oh, okay. So it actually is, you know, very beneficial for people to maybe have, um, I'm going to say balance, but it's agility and, and accessibility and, Maybe, you know, instead of having a full-time job, maybe it's a job share. But back in my earlier career, I I do recall outside of the newsroom, which I started in the newsroom. So the newsroom was very male-dominated. And in fact, the only women in the newsroom typically were secretaries or editorial assistants that would actually type before we got, I was the first one in the particular newsroom that had the first Apple computer. And so, because like, get the new kid to get the computer, right? And I literally typed my way out of that role because I wanted to be a reporter. I wanted to be in the news side of things, not in the administrative. And you really, I had to claw myself out of that role, really type, type, type. But I also had to make sure that I was doing my core job and functionality and knew where the boundaries were. Now going, taking that skill set and then coming back out to the Valley and going into tech. Can I ask you a quick question on that? Were there yeah. men that had that same job that had to also call them that, that were also typing in that same job or like you had a degree in journalism, but you were put in a more of an administrative role because you were female. I'm just curious. Yeah, no, it was pretty, it was, I, I only knew I worked for a couple of media outlets and uh, I only knew one receptionist that was a male, but he did, wasn't in the newsroom. But yeah, it was classic. It was, that's where you started. And, and if depending on, you know, who you knew or how you got your internship, you might end up in the editing side of the house versus the copy editing. So in the traditional way, an edit reporter, you'd have a team, right? And you'd have your reporter, your managing editor, um, and then you'd have your, your content people. Oftentimes people either start in fact checking uh, stories and or copy editing. And so Copy editing um, was really considered an administrative role at the time. It's changed a lot since then. But in general, women study communications and journalism more than men. But when it came to the entry-level positions, the entry-level position was 99.9% you know, administrative, right? When I first entered the tech scene, that was also kind of the, the, the case I saw within corporate marketing. But what I also realized when I was given the opportunity to go into public relations was that the, most of the people that I was working with had come from journalism. They came from the same core background and nuance. I didn't choose to go into public relations. I was a diehard journalist. It just kind of was presented to me and it made a lot more money. <laughs> and what I found really quickly was that they had they come from journalism or um, some form of, of writing, creative writing background. But all the interviews and the exploratory things that I needed to discover and the people that were the experts for the most part were, were male engineers. And if there was a female engineer, which was rare, it was like, oh, I got to make friends with her. Right. And so that was, that was often, that meant I was, I was going to get a bigger conversation, um, much more collaborative. And it wasn't like this pesky PR person 
coming to learn something. But in the Silicon Valley, in general, it doesn't make any difference. I've, I've seen it in small startups. I've seen it in large publicly traded company. Um, the those who are are women that are in senior positions or in management line positions, typically are the are the draft horses and and, and not you know ones with children. Um, I think it's harder. I think that's I think it's just been good. I myself, I adopted my kids and I didn't adopt my kids till. I was uh, started the process when I was like 38 years old. So I put that on, I put that part of my, my professional life was, was a priority. And I think if I stopped and then started, it, it would have been, it would have definitely reflected where I was in my career, but that was a personal choice. And so I always say I would strive for agility, not balance because I just don't think balance is, I, I don't know about you. How do you keep balance? I think it's a, agility is a good word. <laughs> I think balance is a misnomer. I think blend is a misnomer. I, I don't know. Honestly, I don't know what the right term is. I have a, I have a 23 year old, a 19 year old and a 15 year old. And I feel it's like just trying to get through life in the best way possible without losing your mind. I don't know what you call it. <laughs> like You got the whole spectrum there. Well, and then go back to your question. I think there are some high profile cases, which I'm not going to mention because I'm not an expert on any of them, but I think there's some very high profile cases in the Silicon Valley, we'll call them uh, harassment, discriminatory, you know, type cases mm-hmm. are very well documented and you Google them and, you know, even the, even the, the founder of Bumble, which is a online match, you know, business match, date match, friend match type of platform. She was she was considered one of the co-founders of Tinder, but she ended up filing a harassment complaint and went off and started her own business. So those things aren't not commonplace, but when they are and they are very well documented, um, there are others that came out of the venture capital community. I'm still shocked, to be honest with you, when I see these things and I'm thinking, really, haven't we gone further? <laughs> Have we not moved out of out of these um ramifications but my only personal incident uh that i'll i will share is i was working for a tech company and the company was just acquired and there was a really nice celebration and we were i went out to a nice dinner and then the group kind of split up there were there was one group in a limousine a set of limousines the others had individual cars and i was in the group with the limousines and i thought we were going back to the office but Instead, the limousine was uh, was uh, taking everybody to a gentleman's club. And I thought, what? And so, of course, I asked to be taken back and they said I'd have to wait. And I said, well, then I'm going to have to get a cab at that time. And I ended up getting a cab. And I just said my way of handling it was just to get out of there. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, and so I didn't want to be subjected to that. And so I left. But when I discussed it the next day with my boss, <laughs> He said, well, boys will be boys. Mm-hmm. You're either going to have to suck it up or you're just going to have to learn, you know, to make your, your boundaries, which I did. Right. So I, I did the right thing for me and my experience. And I was probably, I don't know, 28 at the time. Um, that was the only thing that was kind of like, eh, this is really sticky. Well, maybe it's not that much different in Silicon Valley than it is in other places though. So I, I worked for a utility for 25 years and, um, one, this was, this was only a few years ago. Actually, it was kind of like when me too came out and I was at a, I was at a happy hour with coworkers and weirdly one of the tables of 
my coworkers, there was like 12 women, which 12 women in a utility and engineering and technical people is pretty unusual. Like I'm not, I don't think I have been at a table of my 12, like female coworkers. And, you know, so we were talking about a specific situation that one of my coworkers has had. And, um, you know, so we were just, you know, talking about our different experiences and stuff. And every woman at that table had either been harassed, assaulted, or raped. And in a lot of cases in like a work environment, like this, not all cases, but a lot of those cases were in a work environment. So, you know, so, so I think probably most women have had some kind of an experience like that. And so maybe it's not a Silicon Valley thing. Maybe it's, maybe it's just, there's more of a, I don't know, like a spotlight shown on it or something because of the tech environment or, or something like that. I, I completely agree with you that and it has gotten better. It hasn't gone away. I was, well, I think people talk about people it, talk now. about it back, back when my situation happened, I think if I had run screaming through the hallways or hired an attorney, I don't know if anyone would have listened. Although, you know, it was kind of like I, I took care. I remember telling my father about it. My father was kind of, you know, disgusted and, and, and surprised. And he says, wow, you know, that's kind of crazy. Um, and, but I, I just, you know, I, I've learned and I, I think, you know, what can we teach the next generation? What can we teach girls coming into more into the ranks of very male dominated, you know, careers? I think, thank goodness, human resources and those more structural type things are in place than they were, you know, 10, 15, 20 years ago. Right. But I think that as more um, and, you know, the, the percentages of women in STEM as more become, you know, getting degrees and following pursuit maybe we start coming, you know, more on equal footing. I'd like to hope so. It's, um, I will say on the engineering side, it's very slow. I mean, the growth is not huge. (laughs) We're not, we're, we're, we're not making like huge strides of getting women into engineering, but I do think that talking about it is important because I think that there is a perception by some people that, that these things don't happen or that they happen at certain companies that you hear about in the media, but, oh, that doesn't happen in my company. That doesn't happen to coworkers that I know that doesn't happen with women I work with. And like I said, 12 women that I was with, it happened to every single one of them. And if we don't talk about it, then it looks like, you know, then you get gaslit, right? Because you're like, you, you feel like you're crazy because people start saying, well, that doesn't happen. That wasn't your experience. And you start like questioning yourself as like, and I think you question yourself anyway, like, what did I do to cause this? The one thing that I would like to, that I think really needs to change. So we talk, you know, about, we do a lot of training on like what not to do, right? Like you're, you go through training as an employee, what not to do basically to keep your company from being liable for you doing something. What we don't get trained on is what do you do when somebody does that to you? right? Like, how do you handle that? And I've had situations. I had a technician that I worked with grab my butt. I got propositioned by a couple of people who were customers of my utility. I was a young 20 something in a very male dominated world. I didn't know what to do, right? Like, how do you handle that? It was it factored. Like, I mean, I recall going into workshops, harassment workshops and, and this is, you know, this is an employee handbook. And as an as an employee needing to have all those things for the state of California, mm-hmm. having, you know, what, what's in compliance as well. So I think it's gotten better, but I agree with you that 
what do you do? Worst case scenario, survivor guide. In in that instant, right? Like, I mean, you can go to HR, right? But what do you do when you are probably, you may or may not be in your office. You may or may not be, you may be offsite, but you're with a coworker. Like, what do you do? How do you handle that? And I don't- Or you're traveling. And you're, you're traveling, right. And I don't think that most, at least I- I, I, I don't know how to handle it. I mean, I, I would probably know. I would, <laughs> I would handle it a lot differently now at 50 years old than I did when I was like 25, when they happened, they happen a lot less when you're 50. It's a bonus, <laughs> but yeah, well, I have, well <laughs> there, but I, I do think that, um, things are far more public, right? People are talking the, the need to be able to enhance at the sea level, you know, the boardroom typically is male dominated as well. Yeah, right. For sure. And so the, the, the need and the move to have women on boards, I think is a great mm-hmm. effort forward to that as well, meaning zero tolerance. And I think if we look at it almost the same way, we look at the, um, the zero carbon footprint, everyone's traveling to, you know, to have zero, reduce your carbon footprint. Well, why don't we reduce our tolerance footprint as well? And so if corporations take a stronger stance saying we have zero tolerance for this behavior and put, and women are in the C-suite and are in those types of positions as a CTO, as a, you know, the head of engineering and those types of roles in those male dominated groups. But, but I would like to think that that is, it's not going to happen through osmosis, but that, that change would start happening. Well, okay. So I had, a, I had a friend who, um, let me think how I, you know, what? I'll just be blunt. She had a coworker who exposed himself to her at work, pretty significant thing in the office. And she had it on video, right? Seems because wow. she had had some previous issues with him. Seems pretty clear cut, right? She was grilled so much by HR who were female. She also reported it to, um, she also made it file a criminal complaint. She was grilled by the police department to the point that she said if she had known, and this was only a few years ago, this was not very long ago. She said that if she had known how horrible it would be and how much she would stuff, she would have to go through. And she had reminded this has, this is on video. She would not have reported it. Wow. And this isn't that long ago. Like, like this is probably like four years ago. So she asked to leave or no, was, no, was no, he was fired. He was, he was fired. He, um, I believe he has to like register as like a sex offender and, and stuff like that. So no, it, it went, it went in her favor, but her point was, it was all of the questioning of her that was so, I don't know how, like, I don't know how to decide it. I can't really describe it because I mean, I, I hear, I heard it second. Well, I heard it from her, but um, it was just a very horrible emotional experience because all of the, um, the detailed questioning that they go, that they go into of like, basically like, what did you do to cause this? Right. Like victim blaming, which I think still happens and shame and shaming. Yeah. yeah. I right. actually have a really good friend who is, has her, her PhD, which is doctorate and on that very subject matter. And, um, Dr. Christine Cadis, and it's really interesting the types of things that she's that she works on because there is a lot of the the, the shame and the blame and the and the bullying, right? And I would think that as adults that we would learn that those aren't good attributes, <laughs> you know, to have within our persona. 
I'm, I'm concerned about the generation that grew up and is growing up and it continues to be growing up and weaned on all the digital, app, you know, TikToks and Facebook mm-hmm. and Facebook is, you know, kind of like for the older generation. And so <laughs> where do you go? You got, you know, I've even told my own daughter, mom, that's for old people, uh-huh. um, which is interesting, <laughs> but I had to monitor very aggressively Instagram and then TikTok and, and, um, this is so bad. What's the one with, with streaks? I can't even think of it. Uh, Snapchat. Snapchat. Yeah. And all these other tools that, that are kind of like the norm now. And there's a lot of that is happening and there's, there's special groups that are just focused on, you know, cyberbullying and those things. And if those kids grew up and that's normal behavior. Mm-hmm. What's the, how's that going to, how's that going to translate into the business world? Yeah. I don't know. I mean, I, I mean, I'm a, that concerns me like, well, maybe we've come a long way, but it's kind of like, eh, there's a new wave happening. Yeah. And there's a new generation happening and your kids and, you know, mine and the next generation of, of younger than the millennials, the, the, the Z's and, and then the Y's. I don't know what they're going to be, you know, how that environment is going to settle, you know, how that's going to look. Well, and I try to, and I mean, I've got, two daughters that are now adults. So they're kind of like past me having a whole lot of influence, but I try to have conversations with my son about, and it's funny because he'll watch like, um, TV shows that are probably, I would say from like the nineties to two thousands. And they're so cringy. (laughs) Like some of the, and I'd like, and so I try to have conversations with him about this because I also, um, I don't want to tell him he can't watch things because I also think that that just makes it worse. <laughs> like he's, he's almost 16. And so I try to have conversations of like, well, like probably like my most innocuous statement is like, well, that didn't age well, or, you know, like that's not okay behavior, or it's like an opening to have a conversation. Not that he wants to have a conversation about most of these things with me. Right. He's, he's just about 16. And, but, you know, maybe it's using some of the stuff that you're that you see as conversations of like, like, this is not okay. Um, my latest conversation with him, I don't remember what we were watching, but, um, it was, it was, it was, some, it was some sexy, which is like super uncomfortable, like with my, with my teenage son. And I'm like, but there was no, like, cons- it, it wasn't like this defined consensual, like she said, yes. And so I started, so I had this conversation with my son, which was so uncomfortable about like, Okay. So when you get to this point, when I'm assuming he's not to this point, but when you get to this point, you need to make sure that you specifically ask a girl, if you can kiss her, if you can touch her, I'm like, it needs to be like, you need to be super clear. Like you both need to be very, very clear on this. And you know, will he listen to this? I don't know. I will probably harp it on him until he leaves. Is it consensual? (laughs) Yeah, for sure. Okay. So now that we talked harassment, um, I'm not going to say to death because I don't think there's a her talking harassment to death. I think it's a super, super important subject. I do want to spend some time. I just, I just say one mm-hmm. thing. I think we just need to be aware. And I think as a quote, if we're going to create like so-called sisterhood, then we need to be aware. And we also need to be in tune to what if a coworker or somebody came to us or a subordinate and something was happening, we need to listen, right? We can't oh, just shove it off. Oh, absolutely. And we need to be really be aware and, and be conscious and have empathy and not blame or shame. I think that's the one only thing I would add is like, you know, just build a strong sisterhood. Yep. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, 
Okay. So do you want to spend some time talking about, um, one of the things that we talked about in an introductory call, which was like, how do you, how do you, if you are a technical person, how do you best communicate to non-technical people? And, um, I'm looking to get some advice and suggestions and some tips for my listeners on how to do that. Cause I think it's a very, very important thing because generally when you're, you know, pitching a company to a venture capitalist, when you are pitching an idea to, um, a client, well, a client might be technical, you know, you're going to senior management. Generally they're not technical or they might not be technical or they might not be technical in what you're trying to get across. What are some, what's some of the advice and suggestions that you have? So with, with start, I was talking, I was breaking into two class, younger company startups, right. Which are very, I don't know. I, I love startups and working with startup and the entrepreneurial ship and your kind of vibe because people are so thirsty and hungry to make, you know, to make a difference. And they put, usually put their back into it. If they're not the founders and they've mortgaged their house and they've got maxed out their cards and sold their, their car and you know, the, the dogs are on timeshare or whatever it takes. Right. I find in those smaller groups um, that there's a lot more cross-pollination of ideas and groupthink uh, and, and acknowledgement that, oh, okay, so the marketing person might not be as technical and the technical people might not be as, you know, maybe creative or, you know, it's left, right brain. Um, but I find those kind of group settings extremely collaborative and the, the nomenclature within the, in the, the venture kind of discussions is that they like that. They like the suits and the hoodies together, right? And so you get universities like Stanford and uh, schools like Babson College, and then there's others, you know, nationwide that are really geared for that kind of entrepreneurship type of, of uh, a group think, right? And, and I think that's great. When you get into the larger settings, you know, the publicly traded company, which I've worked with companies that have been private that I've helped take public, and I've worked with companies that have been acquired and become part of a bigger company. In fact, I worked with one company that got acquired by three companies like Pac-Man <laughs> and over a three-year period. It's like, okay, it's going to be the biggest company that can buy this. The communications get a little more siloed, right? And so you have more compartmentalized. You have engineering, you have, in, you know, you have sales, you have marketing, you have your your ops and your customer support and service. And, and then you, you know, all those components, and then you, you know, you have human resources and within the, those settings, I find it's a little less collaborative and you have to communications. People like myself typically are involved on the corporate level to create, I'm going to say communi- group think communication options. So collaborative meetings, meet in person versus doing things and, you know, working, you know, with on, on your digital device, which has changed the last couple of years, makes it challenging. Right. <laughs> and I think what I've seen uh, with some of my, my bigger tech clients is that we have zoom free days, meaning that uh, now that we're getting back into the office, there's some of the meetings are, are smaller, they're happening in person, but they're smaller in size. And so bringing back the human factor into discussion versus everything's digital. But I, I do think there is, as I was saying, within the startup setting, um, I see a lot more fluency in communication than I do in the bigger organizations. And it's up to people like you or myself that are coming from different perspectives to try to shake it up a bit and knowing that in order for us to be successful, you know, 
company and team that group think and collaboration and me respecting your, your, your viewpoint and your point of uh, vantage point, you know, is really important because that's what makes companies, you know, healthy and grow. So I think I always thought Hewlett Packard was interesting that their approach to business model was that we're a 50 year old startup. I mean, they're probably 55 years old now or something, but, but they operated like a 50 year old startup. And I thought that was really cool because that meant, even though there were international companies and they had layers upon layers of, of, of staff and, 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 uh, you know, advisors, investors, and, you know, known around the world, they operated in this really cool kind of group think forum. And so there was constant innovation and collaboration. And I think that's pretty cool. I think we need to see more of that. I hope you're enjoying this podcast and Donna's story. If you enjoy the podcast and would like to support it, head over to your favorite podcast platform where you can rate it or even better, write a review, which will help other people find my podcast and bring these women's stories to more listeners. You can also find me, Kathy Nelson at www.ordinarily-extraordinary.com. Thanks and back to Donna's story. Do you have um, certain technical people that you have worked with that are good at communicating technical information to non-technical people? Yeah. So I've worked with founders that come from the engineering you know, side of the house that just happened to have that also charisma of being able to do see big picture and, and, and marketing uh, and understand that, which is not that common. And I've worked with the opposite, which are people that, that are come from more of the, I would say product management, product development that end up going back to school and getting master's degrees in engineering instead of an MBA. So I, I've seen both. But most common, it's in the people that are in the technical seats and the innovation seats uh, coming from the engineering and from the, you know, the more of the you know, science side of the house, right? But I think some of the best innovators that I've worked with that are designing products or thinking just, you know, use the word disruptive and out of the box, they typically are coming from that, from the engineering and they just happen to have this aptitude to be able to take it to that next level, which is, okay, so E equals MC square, but what if it doesn't, right? And challenging the status quo and looking at things differently. And those are the types of people that I work with day in, day out, you know, that have created, you know, some of the most amazing things. I mean, I, and, and that's the whole purpose of, of the podcast series that I do before it happens is, Oftentimes, even though they've launched and created these products and they brought it to market, they haven't even thought about like, what was I going through? What was my, what was going through my mind? What was in my pivot that made me decide that, okay, I'm an engineer or I'm a scientist, but now I'm going to create, you know, a crime fighting robot or a flying car or, you know, whatever it is. Right. And and I think that, that acute curiosity that they have is the same type that I have, but on the storytelling front, mm-hmm. it's like, so tell me more. Do you know the book you gave a mouse a cookie? I think I've heard of it. I don't think I've read it. It's a really cute book. I'll probably get a like paraphrase it wrong, but I'll do the best I can. So the premise of the book is if you give a mouse a cookie, then he's probably going to want a glass of milk. And if you give him a glass of milk, 
and he's probably going to want a napkin. And once he gets a napkin and, and, and he's going to wipe his mouth, then he's probably going to want to take a nap. And it goes on and so on and so on. And what I love about that book is not that I like cookies because I do like cookies, but um, it's just it's just kind of like what's happening next. Right. And in science and in in it's not always exact right mm-hmm. and marketing certainly and communications isn't always exact but certain things in mathematics is always exact right mm-hmm. and so and and obviously things in you know in physics and you know other areas which you know are exact but when you start pushing things to the limit it's not exact anymore right and i think that's actually where the intersection between science and then like they say the art and science of things of communications and engineering have to go together because if you can create a fabulous you know whatever widget or or platform or something and you want to bring it to market but that's not your specialty that's my specialty and i need to understand why it is that you created it and what the impact is going to have um, for those who adopt it whether it's a business or an individual and I think then together we're in that collaborative discovery process, right? And I and I think that's that's what really keeps the technology sector and the uh, when you look at what's happening in the convergence between transportation, agriculture, and aviation. I used to have client, and then you had security and intelligence in there. I used to have. At one point, I think I had like 10 cybersecurity companies all working in parallel with each other. But over time, those companies all got acquired by each other. Mm. And, and now you're having that same type of intelligence and security and ensuring that the smart devices that we have in our homes and our car and everything are have vulnerabilities and have security challenges. And so everything has kind of, kind of gone through this um, what they said, the industrial 3.0, right? Everything is kind of morphed together. And I think in some ways we've created some problems and we have to stand back and we have to look at that and say, well, how do we unloop these things? And so that, that creates new opportunities, you know? So, okay, so we've created all these products and devices and they're interconnected. Same way it was in the networking boom. We had to figure out how to connect everything. And now we actually have everything connected. And then we have this thing called the internet. And now we have all this digital content and of course, you know, we have to look at what are the risk factors so that with every, you know, positive, there's a negative, right? So I think that's where um, STEM and, and, and communications, you know, do need to be jogging alongside each other. Yeah, well, and I, you know, so I was in college from 89 to 93. I had no communication classes. I had no public speaking classes. I think that's shifting. What ended up happening though, is I ended up, um, the, the job that I talked about being in Silicon Valley, I was, I was doing marketing and I was, um, that was, that was like probably half of my job, but because I had started doing a lot of communications and a lot of public speaking, and that ended up actually becoming like more of something that I did than technical things. And so I think having a balance and having them jogging alongside each other is really important because, you can have the best idea in the world. If you can't communicate it, it doesn't matter. Like you can't sell it, you can't fund it. Um, and it goes into, you know, the oblivion. And so I think that it is important to realize that they do need to go hand in hand because I don't think I realized that for a really long time. 
Well, no, I took like my first year at UC Berkeley, you know, I, I, I was required to take so much math and, and science and economics and those types of things. And it kind of stopped there after that, right? Because my major was business, uh, economics, and journalism. So I needed a subject matter. And so my subject matter I picked was economics because, and, and that did require a certain amount of, you know, statistics and things. And so was it deep engineering, math, and methodology? No, but uh, it gave me something to write about, right? I had a topic that I could write about. Mm-hmm. I could get into a conversation about business. I can get a conversation about uh, world economics and maybe even politics if needed, but I did at least have a base ground. My, my options were that history or sociology, right? And But uh, I had a lot of friends that were engineering and science majors and they weren't they outside of English they really didn't have to take those types of electives. Right. And I do think um, I've, I've seen a shift. I mean, looking at my own daughter's class uh, things. I mean, she's taking, she's a neuroscience. She switched it again. It's neuroscience and sociology. I think it was my, it was during COVID. It was uh, biological sciences, but she couldn't get her lab. Oh. So um, she switched, but she's taken public speaking mm-hmm. and she's taking um, she took a PR class. Cause she's like, I want to see what you do mom for a living. And, and she didn't like it, you know, and she's like, Oh, that's not, I don't feel comfortable with that. Um, and she's taken a lot of literature. She reads like a book a day and she just, you know, and, and, and loves that creative side. And I think that's really healthy because she, I think in the corporate world, which I hope, you know, she will have an opportunity. She's, you know, just barely 20 going into that corporate world sector that she will maybe help be one of the equalizers, you know, the way you are coming in and having a, a fresh perspective. But uh, I'm hoping curriculums are changing. They are because <laughs> you know, all, they all, all of my, to. all of my kids have had public speaking and a lot of communications and technical writing and things like that. Um, like even, even in like, even in elementary school, and all the way up through their school, they have, and, and into college, they've had requirements like that, which is great. Yeah. Well, and I think with the younger generation, they're, they're, they're watching, you know, um, I don't know, Ted talks necessarily as maybe more our, you know, they're watching our, TikTok. Our <laughs> yeah. I mean, they're watching TikTok, not Ted talks. Right. And which is funny. Um, but, but I, I, I think that being able to, I don't know. I went to a wedding on Friday. Cause this is funny. I went to a wedding on Friday. I haven't been to a wedding in years. Like no one's getting married. A lot of babies that I haven't been invited to a wedding. And, um, so I, I went to the wedding and the, in the minister started out very quite serious. And, and, and I, I was like, Oh gosh, where did they get this? You know, he's so stiff. And then he, then he, then, then he, he kind of went into this next level, which was just kind of like, okay, so he didn't like my opener. It was almost comedic. He really was. I thought at one point I thought maybe he was a comedian because he went from being very serious to like jump going to this next level and highly, you know, um, I don't want to say ignited and, and excited. And he dropped the ring. He called the groom the wrong name. Uh, and it was like on purpose, (laughs) we got every. He got everybody's attention, right? <laughs> and <laughs> including the brides. And I, I, I thought it was really interesting because I look at that as a communications professional and said, wow, how important it is, 
that yes, he made a mistake too, but he recovered from it very quickly. Oh, he didn't, he didn't say the wrong name on purpose. He did it by accident. It was accident, but he recovered from it very quickly. And then he said, he just basically said, okay, so I got your name and just made, let me just check in with the bride over here. And like, what is your name? And I, and I joked to my daughter, I said, well, that was last night's wedding was a different couple or a different person's name. Right. And and I told her, I said, you know, this guy could be on TV because he recovered really well. Right. Mm -hmm. And, and when you're working in like the digital age and the realism, and unfortunately the reality TV stuff that we're all vacuumed into somehow, uh, and your conversation like you have with your son is that I think that uh, ability to use your word agile again is to just, you know, be aware again, aware of your surroundings, aware of the your, and be able to immediately adjust. And he, he did, it was great. And I thought, wow, I wonder. So afterwards I had to go chat with him, of course. And I said, are you a real minister? <laughs> <laughs> or you can meet him because you could add another stand up, you know? And um, he laughed. He says, no, I've been doing this so many years. He says, but I, I didn't intend to drop the ring and I didn't intend to get his name wrong, but, but that happens in the real world mm-hmm. when, you know, I've seen tech talks and I've seen technical talks and I love going to things like the Institute of the future and the world economic foreign talks. And I don't know if you're familiar with like the Millican Institute out of the East coast Their their talks are amazing. And then there's Rocky Mountain Institute based out of Colorado. Their sustainability and climate change and kind of future type talks are amazing too, but they're not all perfect. Mm -hmm. And it's like, and the human factors I think is important is whatever jobs that we have, whether it, you know, be, you know, any form of professional position with a a technical background in, in STEM is that we still, we can't forget the human factor. Right. right. And I, and likewise in communications, you know, it's pretty a big array Some communications, public relations and creative writing and, and journalism and is that you can't forget the human factor. And I think if there's anything that we should have all learned in this last 18 months, two years is that we need to reconnect as human beings. And I, and I love artificial intelligence and, and I've talked to a lot of AI experts. And one of the things that they constantly you know, talk about is that the AI component is great, but you can't rule out the human factor. There's going to be human error and there's going to be, you know, surroundings change and environmental changes and stuff. But if we could all be, when we go back to like what I was saying, it's like we create a better sisterhood um, and making sure that we check in with each other, have empathy, do the things that, that, robots can't do right i love robots and, and ai but they don't really they they can be programmed to appear that they have empathy but i think we can be more empathetic and more human with each other by just checking in well and i think right now with the way that kind of the world is right now i think empathy and the human factor is needed more so now than ever i think it's so it's so absolutely critical because the world is it's hard and parts of it feel hate-filled and you know, we, we need to be connected to people to, in order to have that empathy, which I think is the only way we get out of, you know, kind of this like weird space that we have created. Yeah. And I think that's how tools like Facebook and LinkedIn and maybe even TikTok should be used is to connect. I mean, I will admit every once in a while I watch insipid cat videos. Um, I don't even have a cat. I have a dog. Uh, and I just like, okay, I, it made me laugh. I mean, you know, it's funny, but do I scroll and spend hours? No, I don't have time for that. But 
but I do think I have a, my Facebook community is, is a very small private community, mm-hmm. mostly uh, high school and alumni friends from college and my writers kind of editorial in the early were some of the first people that were using Facebook. So I kind of stay there in the hub, but LinkedIn, I think is a, is a powerful tool for, uh, for professionals to be able to connect and find other talent and find experts. So going back to your book of looking, you're like, Hey, maybe I need to find a, you know, a, a market analyst expert, or I need to, you know, check in with Donna. Maybe she has an expert, mm-hmm. uh, or you're looking to hire somebody, right? So I think LinkedIn over the years has become an extremely powerful tool. And I wish I had LinkedIn back oh, when yeah. I had that big, big Rolodex with all the paper, you know, spending paper. <laughs> I wish that I had a LinkedIn back then because a lot of the people, well, a lot of those people might've already retired by now, maybe in some cases not, but it would have been nice to have a hundred percent of all those connections in the universe so that we all didn't say, oh, we're seven degrees from, you know, Kevin Bacon, right? Yep. And, but- I, I mean, I think, I mean, to me, that's probably one of the, um, the, the best power tools that I use, you know, and just connecting and finding experts. What advice would you give to a young woman or a girl thinking about going into STEM? Hmm. You know, I think that what I've seen in the classroom is inspiring because I, I see girls not singled out and it's not like gender-based math or gender-based science. It's just science and it's just math. And it's like tools you can use and, and weapons. So I think I, I, that's happy. I'm not seeing kind of like, you know, Dick and Jane type of you know, scenario. Right. And being able to just run with it and, and knowing that, I remember when Barbie came out with like the working girl Barbie series mm-hmm. and thank goodness the first few were Barbie astronaut and Barbie doctor and Barbie, you know, uh, engineer. And I, I actually have a Barbie. It's on my desk. It's kind of funny. She has a computer, a, a mobile phone, a briefcase and all this stuff. And she's like, you know, the C-suite Barbie, but, I think just, I think those small social impact things plus the education and the two of them together come in to facilitate change. I am hoping that we're going to see the numbers up. What are the current numbers in STEM and in, in STEM careers for women? Totally depends they, on, on the area. Um, like stuff that is more along like health related things like biology and um, bioengineering, they're probably actually pretty close to 50%. Um, doctors, actually, there are more women going to medical school, getting medical school degrees than men, not by a lot, but slightly. Um, but things like, like I'm an electrical engineer and it's still less than 10%. I'll put it, I'll put them what they are into the show notes, but there's, there's some areas where it's still like quite low and it's pretty, I think it's in the, like the 20 to 25% in technology, um, so it's, it's kind of dependent upon the particular field. Most of my world is spent and most of my career has been spent as the only woman or, po- or sometimes one of the only women in a room. It's my normal life. <laughs> well, and which is mine too, because when I, oftentimes when I'm in an executive C-suite communications or I'm pitching, uh, working with a client, 
I'm the only woman in the in the room because everybody that's part of the company is technical and 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 that's why I was so enlightened, you know, to if, if you haven't listened to the Mercedes Soria story on and my podcast, I mean, she broke down barriers and walls. She came from South America, didn't speak much English, came here in a scholarship with her twin sister, you know, uh, lived on one mail program. They shared a mail program. Mm-hmm. I, I had three sisters. I don't think anymore she'll share a mail program with me. Like, okay, you get breakfast, <laughs> I get dinner type thing. And they, the, the things that they, that the two of them went through and then she ultimately did was just like, you hear these stories and these testimonials, you know, testimonials a, a lot. Hers was so refreshing because it's like going, oh, I can't say I ever had a bad day listening to her story. Right. I can say I struggled, but I didn't struggle that much. Right. And I think it's good to hear those types of stories mm-hmm. and get people that like yourself and, and myself and others into the classroom and talk to girls and get them ignited. I was into geology when I was a kid. I loved rocks and thus my father nicknamed me Rocky, but I loved rocks and my dad made friends with the geologist. I was in proximity of Stanford and, and UC Berkeley and Davis. And my father made friends with the geologists that ran those programs. I had access I thought I was going to be a geologist, that or a park ranger. I just love rocks. But I remember one day I had a school teacher and she said, girls don't do that. Mm-hmm. I'm like, what do you mean? Girls don't do, girls don't work in, in that field. Like, you know, you, you know, and, and it was like, I thought, well, why? And I remember coming home and asked my mom, like, why can't I be a geologist? And then I took my rock collection to Girl Scouts and the Girl Scouts were doing all kinds of other creative types of badges and I was really into my rocks and science and nature stuff and and it was kind of tempered and I think that was the first mm. time and, and I reflected back like uh, as a kid but that same curiosity that I had for rocks and discovery and and you know the different classifications and origins and stuff is kind of how is same discovery and storytelling so it, it, it was almost like the rocks were like my subject matter expert, right? <laughs> and I could tell a great story. So I guess that's how I, I coped with it. But I'm hopeful, you know, that, you know, the, the girls, at least my neighbor kids that I take a poll with and they, I see and what I see in the classrooms that are coming back into swing is that, you know, the numbers are going to increase tenfold and, and not just uh, undergraduate degrees, but, you know, and graduate degrees and hopefully in doctorates. Yeah, I, I, I hope so. And that's honestly why I'm here. Well, Donna, I really appreciate you taking the time to talk with me today. I've had a really great time talking with you. I think this is great. I think you bring up some really important challenges and, and opportunities, I think is even more so is like, these are all opportunities for us to um, to ensure that we're, we're dialed in and, you know, are tuned in and, and, and kind of for the integrity of the, you know, of women, integrity of STEM jobs and integrity of the future. And, and so I think that's what you bring to your show. So thank you for letting me be part of it. Yeah. Well, I'm glad that you're here and I'm really glad that I got the opportunity to talk with you. Likewise. Thank you so much. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Ordinarily Extraordinary Conversations with Women in STEM. You can find a list of definitions, acronyms, and a fact check in the episode notes. If you like this podcast, please like it and write a review. And if you'd like to have more episodes delivered right to you, 
please feel free to hit the subscribe button on your favorite podcast platform. And please join me for future episodes. Thank you.